coming up in this episode of Finding Common Ground. Wait a minute, Bill. Wait, I can't let you say that. Why am I here? This is a smoky place. I'm drinking something I don't enjoy. And then this beautiful woman comes up and I go, okay, now I know why I'm here. This beautiful woman. (laughs) So how do we deal with those biases, stereotypes, and prejudices within our Christian race, Bill, when it comes to alcohol? There are two sides to every coin. How do we deal with racial issues when they affect relationships? Finding common ground on all those issues that we come against. There's black and there's white. And I think as Christians, we have to learn how to get together because we're not in heaven. I've met more interesting people just by God just bringing them in. Republicans and Democrats. But a lot of times when it comes to race and it comes to culture and it comes to perception, Even as Christians, we don't always understand. We look at it through our lenses. There's Bill. I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland called Parma. Uh, Any black people in Parma? There was not one. Not one black person, Bill? Not one. Come on, Bill, you got to have one, a token black person, a token. And there's Odell. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, public housing, single mom, divorced single mom with four kids. And I came up through segregation and all that kind of stuff. If a black person drove through the town, the police would stop and escort them out. Bill and Odell are finding common ground. A part of what we have to do is listen to each other, find the common ground, and question, not questioning you like you're on a witness stand, but questioning you for a better understanding. Dear Heavenly Father, just uh, thank you for today. Thank you for my friend Odell. Uh, Thank you for all the gifts and the things that you've done for my family and his family. Thank you for safety as we traveled to Lexington, Kentucky, uh, to pick out the barrel of bourbon uh, as a group and uh, kept us safe. And we had an enjoyable time. Lord, uh, your uh, your gifts are many and your gifts are overwhelming. Uh, thank you for uh, bringing Odell into my life and, and his wife, Bev, and, um, and Dory's life. Uh, and we lift them up in their family. Amen. Father God, we come to you saying just thank you. God, thank you for healing our land. As now all the COVID cases are going down and it looks, God, it looks like we can get back to normal. I just want to say thank you. I've never lived through a pandemic before like this. And I just want to say thank you for your grace and your mercy and your safety. God, we pray for all the families that have been affected by COVID one way or the other. God, we just ask you to continue to help us as a people as we continue to help those, bless those, work with those that you've called us to help, bless, and work with. God, thank you for my friend, Bill, who I love. Thank you for common ground as we continue to march this tough road, God, talking about things that people are so divided over and others don't even want to hear about it. But for those who have an ear, let them hear God. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' precious name, we pray and believe. Amen. Amen. Hey, Odell, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing good, Bill. I thought I heard you pray to God about something about Kentucky. Uh, what were we talking about? Are we moonshining well, now? What's going on, my friend? Well, you know, Jesus made water into wine, but uh, I think they didn't have the distilling process for bourbon back then. Otherwise, he'd have made uh, water into bourbon. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, Bill. Wait, I can't let you say that. Good Christian folks. Good Christian. The, the, the good Christian 
Sunday school Bible study person who tunes in for the first time, let me give him or her some background around what we're talking about. Because when you start talking about alcohol, wine, bourbon, whatever it is in the church, Christian people kind of um, get a little anxious in a way, Bill, because, you know, wine, uh, alcohol, bourbon is the devil's whatever. I don't know. You know, we've heard so many things coming up in the South and Baptist churches. So, Bill, help the good Christian folk understand why we talk about bourbon so much on our show and everything. Let's let let's free some people. Okay, there's two things. Let me start out with this. What do Baptists two things Baptist people don't recognize. I don't know, Bill. What's two things that Baptist people don't recognize? The uh, uh, the Pope and each other when they're in a liquor store. <laughs> what? Wait a minute. We don't recognize <laughs> the Pope and each other when we're in the ABC store. You got okay, it. Got you. you got it. Thank you, sir. The uh, but, you know, the you know, it's. Interesting. I mentioned bourbon. People say, oh, this guy's an alcoholic because he's he's got bourbon. No, I'll tell you what it does. Um, and it's it's not about the bourbon so much. What happens is uh, it's like having a good meal with friends, the fellowship that it 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 brings to people together. Yeah, they like bourbon, but it's it's more of uh, having that fellowship. And I'll tell you a story that when we, we just picked out our barrel. And uh, this is a special barrel. There's only 400 Buffalo Trace. There's only 400 barrels a year they give out. The distill masters out of the millions of barrels or thousands of barrels they do each year, they pick 400 and they call them barrel select and they stick them in a special warehouse. They call it a Rick house and they age them for seven years. And then we get to go and they pull four of these barrels and we get to taste them and pick the one we want. And then they bottle it for us and put, a, put our label on it put a special label on it. And uh, so we've been doing this five or six years. And this year we went and uh, COVID last year was a little different, but this year that it wasn't so bad. We were able to go and pick our barrel out, but they gave a guy, uh, a fellow who was with us called Freddie Johnson. And I had heard of Freddie. And if you Google his name and there's a lot of YouTube videos about him, he's one of the still masters grandsons and his great grandfather worked at Buffalo Trace and knew some of the distill masters such as George, such as Blanton and George T. Stagg and Elmer T. Lee. And his job was to find what they call honey barrels out of these okay. thousands. Bill, Bill, Bill I'm, I'm interrupting you and I apologize, but I just need to ask a question. You're talking <laughs> about the South, you're talking about Kentucky and you're talking about masters. Is any black characters in this story, Bill? Oh, man, they're all over this place. In fact, I'm going to give oh. you a little story. I'm going to give hey, you a story. black people in Kentucky with the terms masters running around. I think it might be some black folk in the story. <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. Well, Freddie told a story. He said, uh, he said, you know, uh, we, we, he gave us a tour and he had just great, rich history because he used to play there when he was a kid. But the story he told us, he said one day his grandfather and his father and his brother and him opened up a 25-year-old bottle of Pappy Van Winkle, which in today's market, it could be up to eight or $9,000, that bottle. So they poured themselves a little glass, and, and Freddie went to cork it, put it back up. And his grandfather said, what are you doing? He says, well, this is an expensive bottle. We're just going to share one drink. He goes, no, no, take the cork off. And as long as the cork's not in the bottle, 
That means we're here to fellowship. Wow. We're going to stay in fellowship. Wow. And he said they, they were there for three hours. They, and they, he says that was the first time his family, he had talked to his grandfather, his dad, and his brother for three hours uninterrupted. And they talked about a lot of the history. They talked about their, their future hopes, their dreams, family issues. They did finish the bottle of bourbon, though. And uh, but it's Freddie black or white, Bill, because this sounds like a black person. Um, you know, he's black. He's black. Okay. And uh, he's a great, great guy. So we picked out our barrel and he, he's a distill master. So we picked out our barrel and we got done. We said, Freddie, which one did you chase? Because he, he showed us how to do it. And we all picked B, you know, uh, the four. And he put it, he had written on his hand the letter B. So he picked wow. the same one we did. So it was pretty cool. But what I want to share with you is a video of a guy by the name of uncle nearest and uh, and it's actually an audio sorry and folks i'm going to play this and again if you're not driving close your eyes and listen to this because uh this talks about black history and also uh black distill masters so let me pull this up and we'll get this started this is a special home on a special piece of American land. Surprise is still here. This isn't a set. We're in Tennessee, in the hills above Lynchburg. I want to tell you a story, true story. Over 160 years ago, the sight of steam and smoke curling into the sky just around that bend meant one thing to the people of Lincoln County. It meant the man they called Nearest Green was hard at work making the finest whiskey ever to come out of these hills. He took the same elements available to anyone else, earth, fire, water. He added generational skill, success, surely some failure. Put in everything he had. Most of all, he put in his heart. He created a spirit, an essence. What Nearest Green did here, with this limestone, and that clear creek water, those sugar maple trees, he gave birth to Tennessee whiskey. The technique nearest perfected of filtering his whiskey through charcoal made from sugar maple trees is still revered two centuries later as the Lincoln County process. His unique approach was most likely passed down to him from West Africa where people historically filtered their water through charcoal to purify it. This single innovation in nearest hands would become the defining distinction between Tennessee whiskey and Kentucky bourbon. Friends and family called him Uncle Nearest, the first African-American master distiller on record, the founding father of Tennessee whiskey. His story went missing, untold for quite some time. Why? It's complicated. But what's important is that the truth has finally found the light, as it always does. Nearest's given name was Nathan Green. He was thought to have been born in Maryland sometime around 1820. 
We don't know a lot about his early life, but we do know that in the mid-1800s, he began to work on a farm here in Tennessee. This farm. Near Screen was a slave here, and later a free man. And this farm belonged to a man named Dan Call, a preacher. Well, Reverend Call wasn't only a preacher. He had a little side hustle. Yeah, a whiskey distillery. And Nearest Green was the one doing the distilling. The whiskey he made was unique in its smoothness. People said it was the best around. But this isn't just a story about a master craftsman and an innovator. It's a story of a friendship. Around the mid-1850s, a young boy came to work on Dan Call's farm. White boy. Wasn't a privileged kid. The youngest of ten siblings. Motherless by four months old. Small for his age, but he wanted to work. And he helped the preacher out with whatever he could. But the constant smell of wood smoke and the mules and wagons shuffling back and forth up that hollow caught his attention. He wanted to know what the deal was with all that. Finally, the preacher gave in. He took him to meet Nearest. This is Uncle Nearest, he told him. The best whiskey maker I know of. And he asked Nearest to teach his new young apprentice everything he knew about distilling. Nearest took the boy under his wing, taught him well. They became good friends. As the boy got older, he started selling this special whiskey all around these parts and other towns, even to soldiers fighting in the Civil War. He was a natural-born salesman and entrepreneur. The 13th Amendment was ratified on December 6th, 1865. And soon after, Nathan Nearest Green was a free man. That boy, a young man now, well, he purchased Dan Call's distillery and named it after himself. And of course, he asked his mentor and friend nearest to be his first official master distiller. And he kept making and selling great whiskey. And during this time, for a good many years to follow, Uncle Nearest's involvement was widely known. His family became one of the most prominent in the area well-respected for their talents and success. And as his business grew, the young man built a new, bigger distillery on another plot of Lynchburg land. Uncle Nears decided to retire from the game, but his sons, Eli, George, and Lewis, continued to work for the distillery, as did his grandsons, Charlie and I. And that chore boy, who came to be a brilliant businessman, never let his friendship with and respect for Nearest Green and his family go unnoticed. Even after he became one of the most famous whiskey makers in all the world. His legal name was Jasper. Folks around here in Lynchburg still call him Uncle Jack. 
you know him as Jack Daniel. And now, you know Nearest Green. This home, this bottle, this foundation honor that man, his legacy, and his future. Because he lives on. Uncle Nearest didn't just make great whiskey. He made history. And now you know that too. And to all those men and women whose stories remain untold, may their truth find the light. So what'd you think of that, buddy? When you ask me, what do you think about that, buddy? You know, I had my eyes closed and I know that we don't own the rights to it. But Bill, if someone want us, one of our audience want to pull it up and look at the short video, how do they find it? YouTube and the history of Uncle Nearest Green. Uh, and it's on Vimo as well. So you can go online wow. and get that. And uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a great, great story. So, you know, what I thought about, my eyes were closed. So I was just sitting here thinking about it, listening to the music. And when you start talking about, you know, the preach, of course, that's funny to me, but also a little taste. Here's a little taste. And someone who's not a bourbon drinker, I love the story. But Bill, what's the difference between bourbon and whiskey? It talks about, uh, for those, I'm sure it's other people like me who don't drink. What's the difference between Tennessee whiskey and Kentucky bourbon? Is, not- it look like whiskey is whiskey. Yeah, it, it 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 it's it's a naming it's a naming thing. There's a little different process in bourbon. I think it's got to be aged in oak white oak barrels, uh, charred, uh, and aged for a certain number of years. And it comes usually from a corn mash that they make it, and sometimes they make a rye mash. But uh, and where Tennessee whiskey is charcoal filled, uh, filtered. And still aged, but it's run through chart. That, that's kind of the same thing. And they do mashes the same way, uh, a little different, you know, twist. But it's hard to tell the difference. You know, bourbon is used in Kentucky and whiskey can be made any place. Could be, it could be made in Greensboro, North Carolina, if we wanted. Wow. We can call it whiskey. In fact, there's a whiskey distiller in downtown Greensboro, but he hasn't aged it really long yet. And you got to let this stuff age. So, but you know what? The thing that's jumped jumped out at me was this was a pastor doing it. It was a pastor making moonshine. And, you know, George fire Washington, water, fire water, fire water, and 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 you know, I wonder what he, how he preached about fire water on Sunday. You know, George Washington had a distillery, and he used to use the uh, his his whiskey to pay the spies uh, in New York City. Because he didn't, you know, they didn't have a lot of cash, and it was, it was a, uh, it was used as uh, uh, money, basically. It, it, people wanted it, and sometimes he even paid his soldiers in it, or rewarded them with some whiskey. So it's interesting how all that works. Um, but you know, the pastor had a side gig. He said, "We call it, we call it, Bill. You call it a side gig. We call it a side hustle. Side, side hustles." So, Odell, you're a pastor. Do you have any side hustles you want to share with us? I got a lot of side hustles, Bill. This <laughs> podcast is a side hustle. You know, my uh, I write books. As you know, I'm an author, published author, about five or six books. That's a side hustle. I have a company that does uh, consultant and small businesses. That's a side hustle. 
And being the good looking black black guy, that's 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 a side hustle within itself, Bill. But I'm still waiting on that modeling career. But they say I need to lose a pound or two before they really come after me for GQ. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. But you dress, you're dressing for it. Eh? Look at that pretty shirt you're wearing today. Blue. Hey, we're right. trying. We're trying. I had to do a speaking gig with uh, a healthcare company early this morning. So I did that. So we're trying. But, you know, it's interesting when you think about here's this young white guy, white boy, and said he's a t- out of 10 kids. And I think it said his mother died after four months. Correct. And he's like, hey, what's going on up there? Let me meet this gentleman and treated him with respect because he said it was his friend and his mentor. Not that he was a slave, not that he was a black dude. He said his friend and his mentor. And back to what we've talked about in previous uh, podcasts that the slaves, in a lot of cases, those who were enslaved, they took that craft that they had and passed it down from generation to generation, generation to generation. So the secrets of how to do it right was passed down. That's right. So as a master distiller, that is an important skill set. So the preacher got rich. Jim Bean got rich. The gentleman who was um, was doing it got rich, him and his family. So everybody partook in the profits. Yep, they did. And, you know, it's interesting. The uncle nearest they had because he he had that gift to make whiskey. They didn't necessarily have him being a carpenter or a mason or picking cotton or tobacco. No, his gift, he was much more valuable making whiskey for his master. And, uh, but it, I didn't get a sense that it was a real master and slave situation. I, uh, the sense I got is, yeah, that was, that was the title. I mean, that was how they described each other, but uh, they were more friends and, uh, and, and eventually he, he got his freedom and there didn't seem to be, you know, the, in the history, you didn't see anything about being harsh. You know, he whipped them because he didn't make enough whiskey or he made a bad batch or something. You know, you didn't get any of that. Um, so I think they had a different level of relationship than a traditional master slave. I think he saw the I, value. Yes. And, and to your point is um, we don't know. However, I would assume that, too. Because a lot of what we think we know about slavery is what we see with going with the wind, you know, and the things, other things that media shows us. And, you know, Hollywood, as much as we like Hollywood to entertain us, a lot of times Hollywood in the media is not always accurate. And certain movies we've seen doesn't mean that's the way it went. So, yes, because how can you be with a family for hundreds of years, generations and generations, people who... uh, may have wet a wet nurse for you who were black and you know all this kind of stuff so i think that as cruel as slavery was it wasn't 100 percent. now i now i personally feel that it was wrong I, I will say that in a heartbeat um america's original sin slavery totally against it and all this kind of stuff and people have challenged me and say well now wait a minute um, if I was a slave, you know, young black kids, if I was a slave back then, I wouldn't have done nothing. I would die, 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 all this kind of craziness that we say if we were. Or if I was you, I wouldn't do this. Well, until you put yourself in their shoes, I would tell them, don't judge my ancestors for what they did or didn't do, because what they did, they survived. Yep. Were they proud of everything that happened? Of course not. But they survived. And a part of me sitting here today in my pretty shirt, like you said, 
is that my ancestors made sacrifices. So Odell, a good looking black man could be on the uh, podcast with the pretty shirt on talking to Bill. Yeah. You know, if when folks, if you download the video with it, they have pictures of Uncle Nearest family and they the house that they recorded this in was his house. It was a huge house and his family members are well-dressed, sophisticated, and obviously they were, they were well-to-do and uh, which you don't always see that uh, in the blacks in black community. Uh, You always see the, the slaves or the poor, you don't see the, uh, the people that were successful and there. And you think about all the, all the trials and tribulations that they had to go through to become successful. And uh, they eventually did. I mean, I wonder if uncle nearest even could write, you know, I don't know. It's a good point, but you made another point too, Bill. A lot of the pictures that we see are pictures of my ancestors looking horrible. It's almost like, you know, but, but we understand that. We understand what it was and what it wasn't. It's interesting, your point and the gentleman, Bill, you know, we say interesting a lot on this show, right? So I'm surprised some listener had said, oh, they'll find another word than interesting. And I'm like, okay, that'd be an interesting email that you sent me. But let's <laughs> say this, you know, he talked about the story and how his story got lost in time. And he said, that's complicated. And I think that's complicated is a bag that we put our differences of people wanting to take credit for what someone else did. But then he said, the truth always come to light. And as he was having his quote unquote taste, he said, for all the stories of the people that's never been told, that's what I like, Bill. For all the stories of the people that's never been told, because people would make me want to say, just because I'm black and you white, I should hate you, Bill. Mm-hmm. I should hate you. Why should I hate you? Well, because you're white. Okay. Why should you hate me? Well, because you're black. And it's like, no, no, we reject that. We reject that. We're not going to hate each other because of the color of our skin. Because if that's the case, then I'm more prejudiced than you are. Mm-hmm. Because I hate you because you're white. And now you're prejudiced than I am because you hate me before because I'm black. Bill, how hard is it? And this is a black friend asking his white friend a question. Usually the question is, I'm asking for a friend. No, I'm asking my friend. Do you know, have you ever came across a white person who just hate black people because they're black? Because I've came across black people who hate white people just because they're white. Don't even know them. They don't know Bill, but I hate Bill. Why do you hate Bill? Because he's white. Uh Uh-uh. No. Yeah. I've never had anybody come to my face that I can recall and, you know, call me a whitey or whatever. Uh, it might've happened, but I, I don't keep it in my memory because it's, but it's interesting, but I know it goes on. I know there are different people, not just black, but you know, other people that uh, don't like white people, don't like Jewish people, don't like Italians, you know? And I, I can remember a few times, because I grew up poor and my education was, was pretty elementary. Uh, I remember some people that were going to uh, more sophisticated schools uh, came from a wealthy part of town, kind of looking down at us as um, unsophisticated. I wouldn't say white trash, but unsophisticated and not worthy of being with them. And that hurt, that hurt. And, you know, 
the other thing is, I'll just take a black person not liking me because I'm white. Hey, man, I, I had nothing to do with it. This is the way I got I got born this way. You know, I didn't I didn't have a choice. And uh, this is what I get to deal with. And, you know, my parents tried to raise me as best they could. You know, we had very little money at eight kids. And my dad made was a fireman. So he hardly made any money. Uh, so we we're we're in so some of my cousins the same way. We uh, we just never grew up with uh, any kind of wealth. We always struggled. I remember the electricity being turned off, the gas being turned off, the lights being turned off. You know, it's it's amazing. The uh, but you just not much food in the house. Or I, right to this day, I can't eat bologna or cornflakes because I've had so much of it. Uh, so <laughs> stay away from that. No, it's, you know, I love the story of Uncle Nearest. I love that story because what it is, it shows that a man has a gift that God gave him making whiskey. Now, some people think that's not a gift. That's an evil thing. But God gave him that gift and he used it to better his family, his community and build a business. And, uh, you know, I, I, I got to believe that God blessed him. And, you know, I wonder if Uncle Nearest was a religious man. Obviously, he was working for a pastor, uh, a preacher, so I suspect he was. Um, and, you know, it makes you want to dig in more and find out more about him. Yeah, him and the preacher were, were bootleg moonshiners, Bill. Him, wonder, and the preacher, him and the preacher were moonshiners, bootleg moonshiners. And I don't know if it was legal or illegal, but, hey, it was just interesting. To well, your you, point. you wonder if the... Uh, if the uh, uncle nearest and the preacher would get together and have bourbon or whiskey at night and smoke cigars and I tell, don't stories, know about all that, tell stories. So let me ask a question though, because for a lot of our religious, uh, real, real religious uh, listeners who we really appreciate and value, uh, they probably never heard someone have a two Christians who love Jesus, who born again, saved, covered by the blood of Jesus, talk about bourbon and whiskey and wine and everything, because, you know, certain things are taboo. And just because they're taboo and Christians don't talk about them don't mean that Christians don't talk about them. Yep. So, Bill, you came up in a Catholic religion background, yep. and Catholics believe in drinking wine and everything else. I came up with Baptists, and a lot of Baptists like, we don't drink, we don't drink, we don't drink, but you see them in the juke joints drinking, <laughs> you know? So it's just interesting that and I don't want to say hypocritical, I would say human. I want to say human because I think the Bible talks about drunkenness versus drinking. Not that we are saying that we want every Christian to drink. That's that's not what I'm advocating at all. But Odell is known to occasionally enjoy a glass of red wine with a fine meal, and I enjoy it. Now, I'm not big on, you know, as you know, I don't drink bourbon and all that kind of stuff. But I don't judge anybody who does. It's just one old situation. Because you say, Odell, you eat too much pizza. So I don't want you to judge me on how much I eat. And I won't <laughs> judge anybody on what they drink or don't drink. Yeah. However, I don't think that Jesus is going to, uh, St. Peter's at the gates will say, you drunk bourbon, you can't come in. You drunk wine, you can come in. So how do we deal with those bias and stereotypes and prejudices within our Christian race bill when it comes to alcohol? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a great question. You know, I think the, the, the distinction I have is drunkenness. Y you can enjoy something that God has made, but you can't overdo it. It's the same thing like food. You yeah. enjoy food, but you don't want to, you don't want to be overeat. 
Okay. And I counted your pizza. You're right. And uh, you, you were, you were right at the borderline, buddy. I was going to have to yank you. Bill, I think I went over the limit, Bill. I think I did go over the limit. So I'm going to be honest. I think I did go over the limit. And then when you start talking about addiction and, and, and what Christians do, not just Christians, other people do from time to time. And I, I, I don't want people offended because we're telling the truth, or at least we're telling our truth, but be comfortably uncomfortable because a Christian could say, I would never do drugs. However, I would go to the doctor and get the doctor to prescribe something for me that's a drug, but it's like, well, but it's legal. Fine, I get it. Alcohol is legal, but also if you overuse painkillers, opioids, anything, it's the same thing. It is. That's, that's what I'm it saying. Is. It's the same it thing. And well, I need this for my anxiety and I need that. Okay, fine. I remember, and I said this before, when I was in corporate America, I would go to these fancy dancy uh, restaurants. And it would be certain gentlemen at the bar at lunch, and he's called a three martini lunch. Yeah, and we would remember. say, "Well, the gentleman is having a three martini lunch." Well, if we had a poor guy in there with three martinis or three glasses of Ripple or three glasses of wine, he would be an alcoholic. Or back in my days, they call him a hobo. So, what's the difference, Bill, in the gentleman three martinis lunch and the wino or the hobo? Well, that's a good question. The uh, you know, I grew up uh, when I was in business in New York City. Uh, uh, it was called the 21 club and that was the place to go. Oh man. And then you're in Cleveland. It was the theatrical. It's where like uh, Frank Sinatra would go and Dean Martin, they would have lunches there. And back then a lunch was a social event that people would do two or three martinis. And I remember I turned 21 you know, I was working for a law firm in Cleveland. I was a docket clerk making 50 cents an hour filing uh, legal papers for him. And when I turned 21, they said, Billy, we're going to take you to the theatrical for lunch. And I, I, they used to go there all the time. The only thing I ever did was stick my head in. If I had to get one, I never could afford to eat there. I said, really? So I I went and uh, they took me there and I was just, I've never been in a place like that. It was dark and kind of wood, wood uh, paneling. And they said, we're going to get you a martini for your lunch. And uh, I said, okay. Uh, I had no idea what martini was. I heard of them. So I had this martini and uh, I got to tell you, it made me a little silly because I didn't drink much. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I looked at him, I said, can I have a second one? And they said, no, <laughs> <laughs> no. And uh, we left. And, uh, but you know, it's interesting. I've had alcohol around my house all the time. My dad, when we were growing up, my dad would teach us how to pour a, a bottle of uh, his beer and get whiskey and stuff. And, and my dad actually died as an alcoholic at 56. Oh, wow. I didn't know that, Bill. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was. And we tried everything to get him off of off of it. And uh, it, it, he couldn't he couldn't lick it and eventually killed him. Um, but uh, so we used to have liquor all over. My dad wasn't an alcoholic till like his last couple of years. Uh, but he, he grew up with a group of guys like World War Two, Korean War that were really heavy drinkers and smokers of cigarettes. And uh, he was able to kick the cigarettes, but not the alcohol. And his, and uh, but his buddies, they they would drink a lot. I remember, and uh, so it was no thing. I never drank until I went to college. Uh, I had a. I remember first time I went to. I think I was nineteen, maybe, uh, and maybe twenty. I don't know. We went to the Rat Skiller, which was outside of Cleveland State and downstate there. And my buddies were going. My buddies were drinking, but I I hadn't drank. 
And uh, they said, come on, we're going to the rat skiller. So I go down there and this is when you could smoke in a bar and people were smoking and you could buy pitchers of beer. It was low alcohol. I think it was three, two beer at the time. We went down there and I'm sitting there and I, I wasn't making a lot of money. So to buy a beer was a big deal. To buy a pitcher was even a bigger deal. And so we're sitting there and we're having a, a beer and my eyes are hurting from the smoke. I mean, my um, they're watering, they hurt, and the beer is not tasting really good. It's not a beverage that I enjoyed. And I'm thinking, what? Why am I here? This is a smoky place. I'm drinking something I don't enjoy. And then this beautiful woman comes up, and I go, okay, now I know why I'm here. There's beautiful women here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I never grew up drinking. I always grew up eating. When you grew up poor with no food, Eating was, I know this sounds silly, but eating was uh, uh, aphrodisiac in a crazy way. It's almost like, man, security. Uh, beer, yeah. beer always, I think I tasted beer once and it, it, it tasted, it didn't taste good to me at all. Not, not at all. Uh, so that wasn't my big deal. Um, whiskey and all that, that was no big deal. Nothing like that. But I enjoyed eating. I still enjoy eating. I, I, Bill, we got to go out and get some fried chicken. I got to you get know, you some, out here. Some real fried chicken. Yeah, though. we got some real uh, fried chicken. Bill, not going to go to Kentucky Fried. Nah, nah, that ain't no real fried chicken. <laughs> I got to, I got to get you out some real fried chicken. But you know, when you sit down and you start thinking about Christians and some of the things that we put on ourselves that Jesus probably didn't have anything to do with. It's going with the domination, because if you're not careful, you could go through the different denominations and it's almost like match.com. This denomination will let me drink. This denomination will let me wear a skirt this way. This denomination will let me do this. That one would do that. So I'm going to find a denomination that fits. And I'm like, OK, is that Jesus? Because, you know, in the Baptist church, especially the Black Baptist, we got all kinds of denominations. We got this church, that church. We split church splits. You haven't been a part of a church split, Bill? Mm, yeah, I have. And it's not fun. It's not fun. You know, it's interesting. Uh, two thoughts. One is uh, when I was in uh, Catholic and growing up, we, we would drive around and you see this free will Baptist church. And I'd always say, man, I want to join them because that means I can do anything I want. I got a free will to do anything I want. And I knew okay. that was the case. But the second thing is, I one day I was driving up in the uh, mountains in North Carolina, and I stopped at a red light, and there must have been 15 signs for different churches, different denominations, pointing different ways to the church. So I took a picture of it because it really struck me that there were that many denominations with signs. It was like they were competing. And uh, I said, I wonder which one God is at. Mm. And wow, somebody. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You have to say that again, Bill. You have to say that again, because were you saved at that time? Or were you a Christian? I'm not trying to judge you. What part of your Christian walk were you at when you when you had that experience? I had been saved. I, I was evangelical. I was going to Westover Church. And uh, and it just struck me that all these people are OK. Which, which one's right? Which one's wrong? Which one is doing the right thing? And so I posted it on Facebook. I said, I wonder which one God's at. And somebody posted something that I hadn't thought of. In the Bible, it says when what, four or more or three or more or two or more yes. gather together, yes. I'll be uh -huh. there. I'll and be so, in the midst. Yeah. yeah. And so what's the number? Is it a magic number? 
No, I just say it. keep going, Bill. There's no magic number. I want to. I want to make no sure magic I, if it's magic. I want to get the right one because I don't want to. Nah, he nah. says, "Hey, you're short one guy." And I said, "Okay, <laughs> let me go out and get my black buddy. We'll get it up here." But uh, anyhow, he, <laughs> you're laughing. Don't hey, you crazy? You know that? Oh, excuse <laughs> me. I'm not supposed to use the word crazy. That's not politically correct. I think the new word now is your bananas. Okay. You know, all these politically correct stuff, Bill, yeah. hey, y'all just going to have to excuse me. I'm not politically correct. I'm just Odell no, from the no, projects of Charleston, South we Carolina. Just say, we just say, you ain't right, boy. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> I ain't right, Bill. I ain't right. <laughs> so the, uh, you know, so it's interesting. You, you, you get those situations where you've got people and, you know, I, I just felt, my gosh, they're right. It doesn't, the nomination doesn't matter. You know, God doesn't have a denomination. <laughs> he doesn't have a race. He's all he's there. He, he's there with us when we fellowship with him. And it just takes you and God. You don't need anything in between. And uh, so so it was it was kind of enlightening to hear people's response to those things as well. Um, you know, the uh, we've we've gone down a lot of bunny holes here. <laughs> No, 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 no. We're talking about church. We're talking about church. We're talking about fellowship. We're talking about church and Christianity outside the four walls of the churches, because a lot of it is away from the formal church. Case in point, we had church once. We were traveling down the Rhine River on a Viking cruise. It was me, you, Dory, your wife, and Bev, my wife. And I remember us sitting at a table, Bill, and we had, um, I think it was lamb chops. And we're sitting, we're sitting outside on the boat, on the deck. I'm sure it's not called a deck. It's called something fancy, you know. And we were having white, some were having white wine. Others were having red wine. And we sat there as four Christians outside laughing, joking, fellowshipping, praying to God, thanking God for our marriages, for our uh, spouses, that's church. That's fellowship. And it didn't have anything to do with the four walls of a church. That's Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit. That's what it's all about. Mm. Enjoying God's grace and mercy and let our souls rejoice. You know something, Raymond, brother, and let me just add another dimension. I know my, my good buddy, Rabbi Joshua Ben Gideon's listening. We don't have to have a religion. I can wow. fellowship with him the same way with him and Rebecca over a meal, over a glass of bourbon, over just being together in each other's fellowship. And uh, Joshua uh, does every Friday before Shabbat, he invites whoever wants to come over to the synagogue. And we used to sit out in a tent and have cigars. It's too cold now. And, but then we go inside and we have a bourbon before they start their service. And, uh, and usually a bunch of people show up, men and women, and it's all fellowship. And, you know, the, uh, I think I may be the only Gentile there, but, uh, um, it's, it's what I find is we, we connect as humans and creations of God and those things you respect, you know, uh, and I think that's what happens with food. And, and even bourbon, even wine, you know, just sharing that, that fellowship that God has put together for us so we could have that opportunity to nourish our bodies and 
sit down and talk. Uh, you know, Philip Goble, my cousin that was the F-18 pilot, we asked him, how does he find common ground? And he said, fellowship, just sitting down and breaking bread. You know, truth always finds its way to the light. And for all those stories that hasn't been told, when you sit down with my good friend, Rabbi Joshua, as long as he doesn't eat too much pizza, Bill, he's okay, right? As yeah. Long as, he, long as he doesn't eat too much pizza. But <laughs> but I just love our interfaith trips because if we're talking about God, if we're talking about fellowship, if we're talking about religion, if we're talking about human kindness, if we're talking about love for one another, then why do we persecute those who are not like us? Because one of the things about Christians, nobody's that I know of, and please correct me if I'm wrong, in America, this great country that I love, no one comes to me and says, Odell, you better change from being a Christian to a this or that. And if you don't do that, I'm going to kill you or that's the state religion. We have the freedom of choice when it comes to religion. So if we can have our religion, why can't we as Christians, Bill, respect other people's beliefs? I agree. I agree. The, uh, you know, it's, it's just, I don't know. I think maybe it's the fall. Maybe it's the way, you know, the devil works in us. Um, I, I think we were designed to have fellowship clearly with God and Adam and Eve were until the fall. Well, so, you know, we used to say Flip Wilson used to say the devil made me do it. Now, do you remember <laughs> Flip Wilson? Yeah, I do. He was a black guy. Okay. And Jaredine and all this kind of yeah. good stuff. He, he was funny. Yeah. He was funny. Well, but, the th but the thing about it is that I am so blessed to have been exposed to other religions, other people, other beliefs and everything else. And I haven't lost my religion. I haven't changed my beliefs, but I'm more open to other people's religions and what they believe. And I think that makes me a better person. I know that makes me a better person because if I'm only exposed to what I know and the people around me only say what we say, then it's kind of like being in an echo chamber when we're only talking to ourselves, Bill. And anybody who talks to themselves and start answering themselves, then you might say, boy, you ain't right. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And, you know, you, you've preached in a synagogue, a couple of them. Yeah, I have. You know, I've preached. I've been invited to preach in synagogues. I have been invited to preach in white Southern Baptist churches. I've been invited to preach. I've preached at Westover, very progressive churches. I've preached. It's crazy when you think about it or bananas, you know, I say crazy. That's just something I say. <laughs> uh, don't want to offend anybody, but at the same time, you know, being politically correct is a lot of work, but I'm not trying to be um, to offend anyone either. So let, let me just say that, but I've got invited Bill to preach at a lot of non-traditional places, synagogues, white churches, black churches, Large churches, small churches. Bill, why do you think they invite? Why do you think white folks invite your good-looking black friend to come and preach? Because why would a white person trust a black person in the pulpit? Yeah, you know, when you give the when a pastor gives his pulpit up to somebody else, that's that's trust. That is real trust. Um, obviously, they want to hear a message from a different viewpoint and want to. Uh, show that they are integrating uh, and welcoming to all colors, creed, and races. Um, 
So I think that's part of it. I, I never thought about why would they invite you. I think I always thought it, it gave the pastor a break too. He didn't have to didn't have to do a sermon that week. You know, it's interesting. Do you remember the first time you heard a black pastor preach, Bill? I don't remember if I remember the first time, but I certainly remember some of them and how powerful they get. You know, it's interesting. The uh, uh, I, I went to a couple small black churches in Greensboro. My son uh, was involved in them, so he asked me to attend. And uh, there's a lot more singing, a lot more moving around, a lot more swaying. It's tough for a white guy that doesn't have rhythm to stay up with a black church like that. I look like uh, I do stick out like a sore thumb. <laughs> Not only because so I'm white, have because I, I have my wife tells me when we start singing at church and, you know, you start clapping at Westover, I can't clap uh -huh. and sing at the same time. I miss the beat. And so she just grabs my hands and starts smiling and says, honey, just do one. You can't do two. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting. My experiences in preaching in um, white churches, Westover was different because Westover is a huge to the audience. Westover is a huge church, a very huge church. Um I was blessed to go there and get an opportunity to preach. And if you're not looking at God and you look at all the people looking at you, you know, the Bible talks about you can't be intimidated by the faces in Timothy, but you're there to say a word from God. I preached at huge black churches, the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, Jewish temples and synagogues, the same thing. Uh, I had the pleasure of doing Torah study. That's Saturday in Jewish tour study. So I've, I've done a lot and I don't even think about it as why you, maybe another black person may see me as like, oh, now you're a sellout. You are this, you uncle Tom, you hang around white people, you preach in their churches, you're doing all this stuff. But I think God has different callings on different people's lives, Bill. Mm -hmm. And my calling may be different from somebody else's calling. Mm. Um, and that's kind of how I look at it. But as long as, we're talking about God, as long as we're talking about fellowship, as long as we're talking about mankind and making this a better place, I'm all for it. Yeah. So whatever he, because we said, God, widen my territory. God, send me, I'll go. All the stuff we said, but I think it's a person by the name of Jonah. Jonah said that too. Mm -hmm. And then God mm -hmm. said, go to Nineveh. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, no, mm -hmm. I ain't going to Nineveh. Because those people, they don't, they won't appreciate it. So he ended up in the belly of a whale. Yeah. Bill, as much as I like to fish, I don't want to end up in a literal or spiritual belly of a whale. I want him to say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. I want my boys to see a father, a black man who's done all the good things, the right things to try to teach them to be a good man. And I'm not judging my father, anybody else. I'm just holding Odell up to a standard. I'm holding Odell up to a standard. I want my wife to say, that's my husband. When she goes, Bill, when it's my time to go see Jesus, and she walks up and look inside that casket, I want her to smile and say, that's a good man laying there. That's a good man right there laying there, Bill. I want her to say that. That's a good man. And part of being a good man is, I want to leave a life insurance policy for my wife to live. Mm. That's part of that's part of the agape love that I have for her, that even when I'm dead and gone, Bill, I still want to take care of her. And if she chooses to get remarried, that's on her. I'm dead. I'm with Jesus. I'm yeah. in Abraham's bosom. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Amen, brother. Well said. Well said. This has been a great podcast. I've enjoyed uh 
we we've drifted from bourbon to to being a good Christian. It's uh, well, I think good Christians can drink bourbon. I think you're right. I think you're right. Because you're a good Christian and you drink bourbon and you're not a hypocrite. You don't talk about not doing something you do, because I think a lot of us as Christians, if we're not careful, we could take on hypocritical behavior by saying one thing and doing something different. And I'm just saying, be who we are. Yep. Be who we are. My best friend is a white guy. Okay, judge me. But he's okay with me. Yep. And that's kind of how it works. I remember uh, we, I took you to a Boy Scout event uh, in Raleigh. It was like the Southern region. And there was maybe 150 people in the room. And you, you were asked to get up and speak. I don't know if you remember this. No, I do. I'm and, probably the only black person in there. Yeah. You, well, you got up and you, you went, looked out and you go, wow, that is white. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I think you were the only black person and there was one Hispanic. And yeah. uh, and so uh, I was like, OK, he's right. <laughs> he's absolutely right. The uh, only one. Listen, we got to let me ask a question. Do you think people get offended when someone say something like that? Or you think folks don't know that I know and they know and there's nothing wrong with it. But um, I get up and they say, oh, no, you want to say something I'm like, wow, boy, it's real white in here. You know, yeah. and it's like, is that offensive or is that just real? No, you're, you know, you're, you're speaking the truth. It was, but it was the elephant in the room. Definitely. Yeah, the elephant and I was the room. elephant. And you just said, hey, look at, and, you know, you weren't being derogatory or anything. You're just making an observation. You didn't say there are a bunch of ugly white people. <laughs> nah, nah, nah. Because <laughs> if we're saying, and that's scouting event, and I'll say this if we're talking about inclusion, and they're more than just buzz, buzzwords. If we're saying that we want to open it up, whosoever, back to my statement, whosoever will let them come, when they come to your church, when they come to your scouting office, when they come because you invited them, will you make them feel welcomed? And that's the essence. And Bill, when you invited me to come and be a part of the scouting scouts, you made me feel welcome. That's all. If you're going to invite me, be real about it. And if you invite someone, then it's your responsibility as a person who invited a guest to make them feel welcome. And if you Amen. don't want to do that, then don't invite them. I See, I never viewed you anything more than a great friend at that time. Now you're my best bud. But, uh, you know, so I, I, I grew up, when you invite somebody, you make them welcome. You, yes. you, you bring them in, you introduce them to people, you make sure they're comfortable. Uh, they got water, they got food, they got bourbon, whatever it is that you, you do that and you keep, you keep that relationship open. Well, listen, we're getting near the end here and uh, I'm going to give you the last word. You know, I would say this, Jesus says, put down your nets and come walk with me. Now he said, Walk with me. So the question is, is Jesus telling his story to us as we walk with him, or is Jesus telling his story through us as he walked with us? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the essence. And part of the story is fellowship with a glass of wine. Part of the story is a glass of bourbon responsible, and we call it adult beverages. I think as Christians, we got to loosen up a little bit, Bill. 
Because mm-hmm. I think we run people away. I think we leave people on the battlefield. I think we figure that I hate Odell because he's black. Well, why? Because he's black. Okay, what did he do? Because he's black. I hate Bill because he's white. Why? What did he do? Because he's white. Uh, did he do something to you? His whiteness offends me. That's foolishness, Bill. Boy, amen. We're sitting amen. here. We're sitting here in our country, and it's other enemies abroad trying to destroy our way of life. But we're so busy fighting each other that we don't understand the real enemy is outside there trying to attack us. Amen. So my last word is my brothers and sisters of Christ, whether we're white, black, I don't like to say that green and yellow, you know, we say all that to try to make it sound good. Let's have the tough conversations. Let's use common ground or talk about some subjects that it can help us. And we don't have to agree. Let's just say that we disagree with 85% of the things, but let's look at that 15% bill. I think that 15% can be enough that once we break bread together and do whatever else together, maybe 15 can go to 16. And incrementally over time, we have a better understanding and let's ask questions out of respect and love, not questioning someone like they're on the witness stand, but question them for a better understanding. Because if we don't understand something and we act on what we don't understand, some would say we're acting out of our ignorance. And I don't say ignorance as a negative. I say ignorance as Webster defines ignorance. Because as Christians, we have to press in and try to find that sweet spot. Try to do more. Because I think our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is going to judge us on that. Because that's the ultimate judge, Bill. The Lord is the ultimate judge. And on that, I'll stop and say amen. Bill, you want to close us out in prayer? Sure. Dearly Father, just thank you for my friend, Odell. Uh, thank you for this podcast. Thank you for our listeners. Keep them safe. Uh, hopefully, we've uh, allowed them to listen and, and think through uh, some of the things we've, we've spoken of. Uh, Lord, uh, we're just so blessed that you've uh, brought Odell and I together and we've started a podcast yeah, Lord, uh, we just ask for your blessings on this, blessings on our families as we go forward, and blessings on our listeners. Amen. Find Bill and Odell online at thecommonground.show. This podcast is a production of BG Ad Group. Darren Sutherland, Executive Producer. Jeremy Powell, Creative Director. Jacob Sutherland, Director. All rights reserved. This podcast is proudly sponsored by. Whether you're a big, medium, or small business, managing and growing the bottom line is important. Focus CFO brings the experience and financial acumen of a Fortune 100 chief financial officer to your company at a fraction of the cost. PL help, internal reporting processes, or any business transitions or events. Focus CFO will help you and your team have a CFO in your company's back pocket. Focus CFO. Learn more at focuscfo.com. This podcast is brought to you by Yes Weekly, the triad's largest circulated and best read weekly magazine. You can also find us online at yesweekly.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yes Weekly, your trusted news leader for local arts, entertainment, music, food, and more for nearly 18 years.